Today, I want to talk about how Jesus being a friend of sinners redefines sinfulness, redefines friendship, and reframes salvation. Paul said it this way, 1 Timothy 1, 15. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. The most outstanding thing about our creator, Jesus, our redeemer, Jesus, is his predisposition to redemption. Every other being on this planet, every other entity on this planet looks for people who are worth more than what they cost. You know that if you ever negotiate your salary. <laughs> we all want people who are, we all want the people in our lives to be a bargain, right? Christ comes looking for the irredeemable to invest in. To those of us who've decided to follow him, we find that you, you, you can't stop this, so don't, don't even try. You can't help yourself. If you've decided to follow him and you've fallen in love with Jesus, you find you're compelled to spend your life going into enemy territory to reclaim what the snake stole and what he's dragged away to his den to devour. You, felt, you can't help it. No matter how many times you lose that battle, and you will lose it more than you win it. I said, you will lose that battle more than you will win it. But you can't stop because it's the essence of the gospel. We will keep going back into burning houses because that's the very basis of who Jesus is and of our salvation. Yeah, sometimes we get off track. Our motives get warped. We, we do salvation runs for because we like to have one-upmanship on others, and we like to feel better than others, and uh, all of those complexities. We like, sometimes we get a Messiah complex, and that's why some failure is good for us. But the bottom of it, the bottom line is we know what Paul know. We know. We know that this mission to redeem the irredeemable is because we too are the worst of sinners. So as we say at BCC, we're not looking down on sinners to save them, but we're looking up to sinners to serve them. Jesus, I want to, I want to talk to you, number first of all this morning, about how Jesus, being the friend of sinners, redefines sinfulness. 1 Timothy 1.15, let's read it again. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. This sounds wrong, doesn't it? He's still saying, I am the worst. He's still identifying. He's still identifying. Now, we know Apostle Paul uh, was Saul, and he was a persecutor of Christians. We know he was a Pharisee of Pharisees, a persecutor of Christians. Uh, but it's a mistake to think that he's only talking about the deeds that he committed. 
when he talks about being the worst of sinners. In the words of Tim Keller, the proper biblical understanding of sin is much more radical and far-reaching. It can never be used as a weapon because it will recoil on anyone who tries to deploy it that way. Biblically, no one escapes the verdict of being a sinner. Now, we know enough about Paul to know that sinner here, as I just alluded to, refers to something more fundamentally wrong with our nature than breaking moral rules. And, and, and there's something more fundamental about redemption than merely appeasing an offended or furious God. We get this dysfunctional model from our dysfunctional flawed families. Our, our dysfunctional flawed families that we all are part of and from and still doing is that most of the, most of the time or a lot of the time, uh, our families are run by shouting and pouting parents. You know, we're, Paul wasn't going around breaking moral codes. You know, you know how it is. You, you can learn how to stay out of trouble with mom and dad if you have a brain in your head. You, have, you can learn how to stay in trouble, out of trouble with them. You can learn the four or five things that make them crazy and not do them. Now, some of you lack that brain that I just referred to because you will not stop doing the four or five things that will make them go berserk. And you know that getting through the family system is all depend, it, it, it's all about keeping mom and dad from killing you. That's how you survive the family system. And you, you survive the family system by keeping mom and dad from killing you and extracting as much money and affection from them as you possibly can. That's how, that's how the family system works. But we make a big mistake when we take that model of how our families work and we put it into God. And so we're always trying to stay out of trouble with God. It, Paul's background was very moral. In fact, it, it's, un, it's, un, it's incorrect to define, even though Paul probably participated in some people's execution, it's, un, it, it's wrong and, and inaccurate to describe him as a murderer. He was not a murderer. He was, he was following the confines of the law. And so, yes, he drug Christians into jail, but he thought, he later said, I thought I was doing God a service. Paul was a moralist. He was a rule keeper. He was not a rule breaker. He was a rule keeper. So there's got to be something more going on here than just breaking rules. Now, now don't get me wrong here. Moral policing has its place. I'm not, I'm not advising us to stop doing moral policing. But it doesn't deal with what's fundamentally wrong with us. Moral policing doesn't deal with what's fundamentally wrong with us. Just defining the four or five or six things that the church says is bad and not doing them does not fix what's wrong with us. It does not fix the sinful hearts that we have. It does not solve the problem. It doesn't even address the problem. Some of us just aren't interested in doing those four or five things. So does that make us righteous? Because you have no appetite for those things? Because you, you don't find any pleasure in them? I mean, for some of you, this is the highlight of your week. 
being here. This is the most exciting thing you're going to do all week. <laughs> right? You're just not going to go get in moral trouble because this is it. This is, this is your threshold of pleasure <laughs> right here. I thought that would get more laughter. It's all right. It's all right. You're not here for my ego. We're doing much more important business than taking care and coddling my ego, right? Moral policing has its place. It, you know, let me give you an example. Your parent and your, your daughter, your 15-year-old or whatever old she is, she brings her boyfriend over and they go off to their room and shut the door. And if you, if you, if you are okay with that, you're, you're not, I started to use a pejorative term, but you're, you're dumb. <laughs> if you're okay with that. But, but let me tell you something. The sinfulness at that situation is not what's going to go on behind that door. That, that's not really the sinfulness in that situation. The, what, what, what we need to realize here is what the sinfulness of that situation is when little, your little Johnny and the, the little Susie brought over, or the, whatever, when they shut that door, the problem here is when they shut that door, they become their own boss. When they, become the, when they shut that door, they become their own authority. They become their own authority deciding on their own what is right, what is wrong, how far can we go, how much can we trust ourselves, how strong can we be, how can we stay out of trouble, how can we keep from doing something we regret but do what we want to do. We are in charge of our lives. For the, that moment, we're in charge of our lives. That's what's, that's what's wrong about that situation. What's wrong about that situation, it's not, it's not what's going to happen behind that door. I want you to know God created us to, 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 to do what they're going to do behind that door. So how can it be sinful? It's sinful because, the, and, it's, and it's wrong, and it's on the wrong path, and it, it, re, it does reveal sinfulness. It does reveal the sinfulness of our heart, but the sinfulness of our heart is that we believe we can be independent of God, that we can be independent of the presence of God, that we can be independent of the, of the authority of God, of the surveillance of God, of, of, of God attending to us, that we can actually trust ourselves without Him. The riddle of rebelliousness is resolved when we realize and this is not bad news. This is really good news. I know it sounds like bad news. It's, oh, I can't, I can't, I can't do that. I can't do this. It's wrong. It's evil. If it's fun fattening, oh, oh, it's immoral, you know, that kind of thing that the church used to believe. No, 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 not at all. This is good news because you are created. Oh, this is great news. This is the good news of the gospel. You are created to rule. You are created to have authority. You are created to take dominion. You are created to take dominion over the earth. You are created to take dominion over your emotions. You are created to take dominion over your body. You are created to take d dominion over pain, over sickness, over, over the things that, 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 that define you, over the things that, that bind you, over the things that pinch you, over the things that hurt you. You are de designed by God to take authority in the community and do works of compassion in the community. You are you're, you're released by God to transform the community. 
And you can only do that when you're under God's rule. When, when, when God rules through you, you are righteously redeemed. You're being redeemed by the blood of Jesus when God can once again rule through you. When he can rule your home, when he can rule your morality, when he can rule the sinfulness in our community and not rule it in the sense we're going to smash it out, but in the sense that we're going to serve those who are in bondage to it. If that's what it's all about. So righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus Christ is that, we, that we've, been, we've been raised to rule and reign with Jesus Christ. That's the good news of the gospel. If, if, the, if the gospel was, oh, you can't do this, you can't do that, you can't have any fun anymore, it would be bad news. We would call, I come here to preach the bad news. Is you have to die before you die. You have to live dead for the next 40 years. You're just going to live dead or 70 years. Whatever you got left, live like you're dead. Live like there's no beauty, there's no pleasure in life. There's nothing you would want to do except, except live in a monastery and chant. No. God has called us to redeem the earth. He's called us to be the light of the world. <laughs> a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. You see, we all have a natural tendency to, to, to say, dis, we dismiss God. Here's, here's what sin Here's what sin is. It's dismissing, it's dismissing God and saying, God, I got this. I got this. You don't have to tell me that. I've got this. You don't have to tell me what to do. I got this. Adam and Eve, that's what they did in the garden. Adam and Eve, they did not commit adultery. They did not steal anything. They did not kill anybody. They didn't do anything that would get you put in jail or get you in handcuffs. They didn't get any, anything that would get you kicked out of a church. They simply said, God this dominion thing, we like that. Would you? We don't need you, though. They didn't even tell God they didn't want a relationship with him. They didn't go, we don't want a relationship with God anymore. They didn't do that. They said, we don't want to see God. They didn't say, we don't love God anymore. They said, God, we want to run the world without you. We want to, we want to be our own boss, our own authority. So, so when you ignore the moral rules, you're doing a lot more than breaking a moral rule. You're declaring your independence from his authority. That gives you authority, therefore you lose your authority. <laughs> who hasn't said, who hasn't said in this room in one way or another, after you behaved a certain way, I don't know what I was thinking. A anybody besides me? You've never said, I don't know what I was thinking. Why? Because you constantly prove that you don't have the power. Oh, you know what the Bible describes sinners? As people who are weak. Are weak. Not horrible, ugly, bad people, but weak. Weak. I, I was weak without the Lord, but the Lord came as, the Lord is my strength. The Lord is my strength. I, I told you, I know I've used this illustration a few times over the years, but I asked a neighbor one time who was a bouncer at a bar, I, I asked him one time, I said, do you think you see human beings uh, uh, at their worst a lot of nights? And so I said, do you think human beings are basically good or basically evil? And I didn't expect the answer. He, he was a better theologian than me. He said, people are basically weak. 
Here's what N.T. Wright says. I love this statement. I, I don't know. I hope you like it as much as I do. When humans sin, they hand to, nine, they hand to non-divine forces a power and authority that those forces were never supposed to have. Does that, does that communicate to you? They hand to those non-divine forces the authority that they were never supposed to have. So when the, when the, when the kids go in that room and shut the door, they're handing over power to non-divine forces that those forces were never supposed to have. I'm, I'm supposed to have power over my sexuality, not the other way around. Not the other way around. Sexuality is not sinful. What is sinful is when I do not have power over it. What is sinful is when it owns me. Listen, God's just want... Let, let, I want you to say this to your neighbor after I'm done. God wants to give me my life back. Turn to your neighbor and say, God wants to give me my life back. If you go down dark paths, I'll, I will guarantee you what will happen to you if you go down certain dark paths in your life. You'll wake up one day, and whether you articulate it this way, I don't know, but it will come out something like this. I don't know who I am anymore. I've become something that I don't know who I am because sinfulness distorts you. It distorts you. And Jesus, did he come and die because he wanted to make your life miserable? Did he leave the portals of glory and live as a man and get beaten up and abused so he could cause you not to have any fun? That's, that's, that's sick. Now, I know some people who would go to that much trouble. <laughs> I know a few people in this world who would go to great lengths to make other people miserable for some reason, but that ain't Jesus, man. That's not the Jesus that I'm in. That's not the friend of sinners. See, the deception, the reason I say it's not about breaking moral rules is the deception of straight-up moralism is that we can deceive ourselves into thinking we don't have this natural tendency to say, God, I've got this. Because we don't do the four or five things that the church says are sin, or the ten things that the church says are sin. So the deception of being a moralist, and being a moralist is when you believe you're righteous because you don't do those ten things, or those five things. And you believe you're, you've got it, on, you're go, you got it going on with God because you don't do the few things that will get you kicked out of a church or out of a ministry or whatever. But do you have, and we all do, I don't say do you have, we all have the tendency to say, God, I got this. I'll let you know when, I'm done, when, I, when I've straightened out that situation for you, and I don't need you telling me how to love, how to be compassionate, how to speak, how to, how to think. I don't need you telling me. I don't need all this. Now, you're not going to say that because you're too holy. You lie to yourself, though. See, Satan, Satan does not, we're not hurt by Satan by physical scars on our body, but by the lies that he speaks to our minds. 
Satan damages by the lies he speaks to our mind. And when, when, we, when, we, when we become moralist, we lie to ourselves about truly giving God the authority and Jesus' complete authority. And I, you know what? I, I, want to, I want a full confession. I'm absolutely resigned to the fact that my tendency to self-exaltation and idolatry will never be completely gone until I escape this flesh suit. It will never be completely gone. <laughs> right? It, it won't. Paul said it this way in Romans 7.23. And just listen here. It's not going to go up on the wall. But I see another law working in my body which makes war against the law of my mind. The law that my mind accepts. That's the law of liberty in Christ Jesus. That other law working in my body is the law of sin. And it makes me its prisoner. What a miserable man I am. Who will save me from this body that brings death? One of the things the Romans would do when they punished people was they would tie a dead body to them and they would have to live with this dead body for days and days. I thank God, he says, for saving me through Jesus Christ the Lord. So in my mind, I'm a slave to God's law. But in my sinful self, Paul is acknowledging, I still have a sinful self. I don't get delivered from that yet. My sinful self, I'm a slave to the law of sin. See, before Jesus came, friendship, let's, let's, I'm getting ahead of myself here because I want to transition to the next thought. I want to transition to the second thing that the friendship of Jesus being a friend of sinners accomplished. I just told you the first thing is it redefines sinfulness. It redefines sinfulness. And now I want to, I want to, uh, to, to uh, talk about the second thing that it does. But before I do that, before I do that, I, I still need to make one more point. Because somebody is going to hear this, and they're going to think, well, I don't want to be a moralist, so that means that, um, that means I, I go, I, I, I can go right back to my, the crack house or wherever I used to hang out. But that's not the deal here. That you can just go back and hang out where you used to hang out, maybe. There are cases where God calls people to crack houses and God calls people to minister in bars and all kinds of places. Yes, absolutely. But for some of you, you know, that's, that's, um, that's, that's going to be death for you. Uh, Romans 5.8 says, But God demonstrates his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, I want to read something to you that Tim Keller wrote in Encounters with Jesus about this. He said, then is now people who thought they were moral rejected and shamed those who helped believes or practices that those who, that, that, that who helped believes or practices that they thought wrong and immoral. But Jesus astonished everyone by being willing to eat with tax collectors, collaborators with the occupying Roman imperial forces. This outraged those we might call the left those zealous against oppression and injustice. But he also welcomed and ate with prostitutes, which offended those promoting conservative or traditional morality on the right. Jesus deliberately and tenderly touched lepers, people who were considered physically and ceremonially contaminated, but who were desperate for human contact. Yet he also ate repeatedly with Pharisees, showing that he was not bigoted toward the bigoted. He forgave the enemies who were crucifying him and the friends who were letting him down in the hour of his greatest need. Jesus, the friend of sinners, 
redefines friendship. Christian love is never about only being winsome, kind, generous, and helpful to our kind of people. Christian love transcends race, class, personality, and type. It might be helpful for us to know that. I'm not going to say much about this because it would take it could take a whole sermon to talk about civility. But I'm very frustrated with what I see happening right now among Christians. People walking away from people because of their political views. Conservatives walking away from liberals. Liberals walking away from conservatives. Walking away from, I mean, people are, are walking away. People are leaving churches. People are breaking up friendships because of political views. Jesus came and was a friend of sinners. Jesus came because he recognized in the conservatives and in the liberals there was sinfulness. He recognizes that the very foundation of sinfulness resides deep in the human heart, regardless of our political view, regardless of what we think about immigration, regardless of what we, what we might think about military force, regardless of what, what we might think about uh, uh, economic policies, regardless of what we might think about a political party, that rule that is, is in our heart. And, and Jesus exposed the hypocrisy of his day because, the, see, the ruling class of that day calls anyone who wasn't in their group a sinner. And he wasn't, anybody who wasn't in their group was a sinner. But Jesus exposed their hypocrisy and he opened the kingdom of God to whosoever will. The church sanctuary, you say, you say, well, you tell me not to, I don't, probably shouldn't go back to the crack house. Or maybe there's certain places where people were doing things that I, I'm not going to be able to resist temptation. You know, here's the deal. The church sanctuary is a fine place to start modeling friendship with sinners. Remember, we've, we've redefined sinfulness today. So right here, right now, is a perfect place to start modeling Friendship with sinners. Your community group is a fine place to start modeling friendship with sinners. We don't recognize that rejecting people because of their flaws is doing the very opposite of what Jesus did. We don't recognize that rejecting people because of their weaknesses and their flaws is rejecting, is, is not being, that your, sin, that your sin in that moment is that you're not being a friend of a sinner. That, that when you reject me, you walk away from me because of the things I do that really frustrate you. You are not being a friend of a sinner. Now, I understand that we extrapolate this through all our relationships. Yes, it does apply to the people who we might d determine are, Im are really outwardly immoral. It, it, does deter it does reply to the people that, that don't go to church and the people in the neighborhood and the people in the community. It applies everywhere. See, that's what Jesus did. That's how Jesus did it. Jesus did it. Whoever I'm in proximity with, I'm going to love them. 
Whoever, if I happen to be in proximity with a conservative, if I happen to be in proximity to a liberal, if I happen to be conservative to a sexually immoral person, if I happen to be in, in proximity to a self-righteous person, I'm going to love them and I'm going to act redemptively toward them and I'm going to show them the, 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 the power of Jesus Christ. I'm going to show them the light of the gospel and I'm going to begin to live toward them in a way that will do everything in my power to redeem them. I'm going to do everything in my power to redeem them and bring them into the full family of God and the full experience of knowing the power of the cross and the full experience of knowing Christ. That includes the people who live in my house. It includes the people I worship next to. It includes the people I go to a small group with, the people that I do ministry with, the people that I, I sit in the next office cubicle of them, the people that work for me, the people that work over me. I'm going to start living toward them in a redemptive way. I'm going to start living to, living to I'm going to stop looking down on them and save them up to them to serve them and start bringing them the love of God. <laughs> Jesus redefined friendship. He redefined what friendship is. It is not getting together with the people who share your interest, your politics, your beliefs. It is not getting together with the people who are like you. Jesus moved comfortably from one social group to another because he was a friend of sinners and he regarded every human being as a person who, see the gospel has two sides. The gospel has a negative side and a positive side. The gospel has a very, what, what seemed like a very intolerant side to it. And the gospel has an extremely tolerant side to it. And Jesus held those, ten, those two together in perfect tension because he regarded everyone as a sinner. That word has a lot of baggage in culture today. He regarded everyone as a sinner. Over here on the left. Or the right. If you're conservative, it's the right. I mean, if you're a liberal, it's the right. If you're conservative, it's the left. <laughs> he regarded everyone as a sinner. But he regarded every man and woman and child as an image bearer of the Father. And he kept those two things in perfect tension, and he was able to do both. That, that's, that's another sermon, but that's why he got killed. The gospel will get you killed, you know. Because you, everybody is either going to love you or everybody's going to hate you because you're going to offend everybody if you walk in the gospel. You're going you're gonna to be alone sometimes. Let me give you the final insight here. Jesus, the friend of sinners, reframes salvation. Listen up. The average Jew believed that salvation was to make their Messiah their greatest general. Jesus knew that salvation was to make their Messiah the greatest treasure. I'm borrowing some language from John Piper, if you ever read or listen to John. The average Jew believed that salvation was to make the Messiah their greatest general. Jesus knew that salvation was to make their Messiah their greatest treasure. You know this friend of sinners who loves you? You know what he, he, he asked from you to give you this gift of eternal salvation? Love me back and be my friend. Make me your greatest treasure. 
Paul says, for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ might display his unlimited patience as an example to those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. That's Christ's friendship toward me. Verse 17, now to the king eternal. Here's my, here's my treasure of him. I just told you, Paul's saying in so many words, I just told you in verse 16 how he treasures me. Now I want to tell you my response is to now treasure him. Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever. Salvation comes not with obeying some moral rules that you can prove you're saved because you don't do this and you don't do that. Salvation comes with the reordering of our loves. Salvation comes when we decide to hold on to Jesus. In fact, Mary Magdalene gives us a rich illustration of the affection and warmth in that word, Lord. When in John chapter 20, she said to her, Jesus said to her, and Jesus is risen from the dead, and Mary Magdalene has come to the tomb, and Jesus said to her, Mary, Mary, Jesus, Mary turned toward Jesus after he said Mary, and she said in the Jewish language, Rabboni, which translated means Lord or teacher, Jesus said to her, don't hold on to me, because I've not yet gone to the Father. Don't hold on to me. That's more than figurative language. That's a woman who loves Jesus. That's a woman who's holding on to Jesus. She's let go of everything else in this world that would bring her hope. Everything else that would bring her, her satisfaction, everything else in the world that might pose as her savior, and she is holding on to Jesus. That's where I'm going to challenge you to move today, if you haven't already. Move to the point. What does a friend do? A friend holds on to you. A friend walks in when everybody else walks out. I want to ask you to move to Jesus and become his friend and make him your greatest treasure. Salvation comes when we find our happiness in Christ. When he becomes our greatest joy. The American writer David Foster Wallace got to the top of his profession. Like one, time, one time he wrote, he wrote a sentence that had a thousand words in it. I've come close. A few years before the end of his life, though, he gave a now famous commencement speech at Kenyon College. He said, everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God to worship. It's that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you're, you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before your loved ones plant you. Worship power, and you will end up feeling weak and afraid. And you will need ever more power over others to numb your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid. A fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Look, the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful, it's that they're unconscious, they're default settings. 
A couple of years after giving that speech, Wallace killed himself. And those non-religious man's parting words haunt me. Something will eat you alive. For a different message, listen to a sample of what Matthew Slater told reporters covering the Super Bowl. Everything I do, I do for an audience of one. I wouldn't be who I am or where I am without Jesus in my life. It's only by God's grace and mercy that he's shown me and what he's done in my life. It's nothing short of a miracle that he's allowed me this platform and this opportunity. So I feel an obligation at the very least to tell people the reason that Matthew Slater is up here doing this is because of Jesus Christ. Another time he said, I wouldn't rest well in my soul if I didn't do that. For anybody who's willing to listen, and sometimes the people who aren't, I want to make sure that I give the glory to God so people understand I'm not a self-made man. Another time he said, I don't put all my eggs in the football basket. Football is a temporary game, and I hope others see a guy who's got an eternal perspective beyond the game. To fully embrace your friendship with this friend of sinners, take those statements of Matthew Slater and personalize them. I understand that it may seem more challenging to you because you don't have, you're not playing in the Super Bowl or you're not doing something that most of us think is pretty cool. I understand that. You're living a normal everyday life and you're going to work every day. But I'm telling you, those statements will work. It'll work for being an auto mechanic. It works for auto mechanics. It, it works for medical technicians. It works for salesmen. It works for people who run chemistry labs. It works for people who do design and decoration. It works for people who teach school. It works for people who run charitable nonprofits. It works for HVAC repairmen. <laughs> it works for PhDs. It works for chemists. It works for presidents. It works for pastors. To say, Jesus is the reason. To say, Jesus is the reason. So these statements, personalize these statements in your own con context. They may not be as glamorous as for Matthew Slater to say it, because he's at a Super Bowl, but it will be just as transformative. And it won't just transform your life for others, it'll transform you. And it'll transform your joy. Because if your happiness is dependent on people, you will constantly be losing it. If your happiness is depending on your physical appearance or your ability to control things, you will constantly be in tur turbulence. But if your happiness is dependent on Jesus, you have the possibility of being happy every day. Every day. Father, I pray for the folks this morning. Some need to cross that line of faith and make Jesus the greatest treasure. Some hear this message and they need to stop being just moralist and start being gentle and redemptive. 
Some hear this message, God, and they just need to realize that Jesus loves them. Just where they are, just what they're doing, he loves them right now, and he's their friend, and he's here to help them. In Jesus' name, let us move into that place. Now, you're here today, and you want to be prayed for for something that was preached on or something that wasn't preached on. These prayer partners are here, and they're waiting for you to come up and be prayed for. There's communion for you to receive. Maybe you just want a private moment. Maybe you want to grab a friend by the hand. Maybe there's somebody that you kind of need to make up with and and, uh, renew your friendship with. Maybe you haven't been a very good friend of a sinner. And don't go tell them you're a sinner or anything like that. Just, just... (laughs) Just go get them and say, let's go have communion together and let's love each other. Okay, come on. Let's enter into response time. You've been listening to the Bethany Community Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us online at bccma.org. Thank you and God bless.